Well, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Thanks to the choir. Man, what a, uh, what a home run. Boy, that was just absolutely incredible. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Let me ask you a question while you're turning there. Have you ever missed it before in your life in any area? Maybe it made you laugh. You know, you just kind of missed it in a funny way. You thought the movie started at 8, and you got there at 8, and the movie was half over when you walked in. Yeah, that kind of miss, have you ever missed it that way? We, uh, I had the opportunity to go this past weekend. It was just Hannah and Drew and, and myself. Went to a Braves game in Atlanta, and uh, Susie and April stayed home. And she said a few weeks ago, she said, uh, we were at a Braves game, actually, on vacation. And she said, you should bring Hannah and Drew back here by yourself. And I was like, really? <laughs> we, I can do that? <laughs> so, uh, so this past Friday, Saturday was the time to do it. And, um, and so uh, we jumped in the truck on Friday. We drove up there. Man, we were fired up, just so excited. Well, we found out that the Braves were doing some kind of a promotion where if you could, you could pay $20 or you could bring 20 canned goods, right? And, uh, and you could get a free autograph out front of the stadium from one of the pitchers. And so... So I said, all right, we're all about this. So uh, Hannah, eight years old, Drew, six years old, get your baseballs. So they had their baseballs, they had their Sharpies. They actually packed their own bags, right? And they had their baseballs and their Sharpies in their own individual Ziploc bags, okay? They were into this. This was off the deep end. They were fired up, ready to go. So we get to the game, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm lugging a backpack with about... 30 cans of, of vegetables on my back going, going, to the, going to the Braves game. So we get there, we unload our, our, my backpack, and you know, poor little Hannah, she's like carrying the other cans from the parking lot to the stadium. So we get there, we drop them off, and uh, we get our two autographs. Well, after the game, they had fireworks, and just incredible. And uh, well then, I've learned a little secret. There's a place where you can go at Turner Field, and you can get autographs once the game's done. And the players, they leave, you know, where the, you know, the player lot is, and they come out. A lot of times, they'll sign autographs. So, um, so I said, all right, here's what we're going to do. I had this game plan all charted out. I said, after, after the fireworks are over, we're going we're gonna to leave our seats, and we're going to go down, and we're going to get down to that barricade right there, and we're going to be standing, and when they all come riding by, we're going to scream like crazy, and we're going to get their autographs, okay? And they're like, we're in. And so uh, the, the fireworks, you know, we watched the fireworks. The fireworks were done. We came down. We got to the barricade. And so we walk up, and there's hardly anybody there. And, uh, and I saw this lady and her, her husband and her kids there, and I, I said, um, I said, they, they already did this, didn't they? And she said, yeah. All the players left during the fireworks. And I missed it. I missed it. And I haven't seen Hannah and Drew since. I don't know how they, <laughs> I don't know how they got back to Savannah. <laughs> they just kind of left. No, that part was just, uh, just made up. But, but we've, all, we've all missed it, haven't we? Right? We've all had those times where we've missed it. And sometimes it's funny, right? I mean, you as guys, you miss it at times. If you're married, I know you've missed it because there have been times when your wife has asked your opinion on something and you really thought she wanted your opinion. And you gave your opinion and you realized she really didn't want my opinion. You know, she, I, I just kind of missed that one. Or maybe for some of the singles, you, you know, the, the, the blind date thing was a really good idea until you met. And then you, it was a lot better when it was blind. And then when you actually met, <laughs> you, you realized, you know, I kind of missed something in the fine print. Or this wasn't really going the direction I thought it was going to go. Sometimes it's funny when we miss it. All right, we laugh and we kind of breeze on through and we got a story to tell later on. Sometimes it's not so funny. Sometimes we can miss it in ways and the consequences are extremely far-reaching. Sometimes we can miss it in ways where the consequences drive down deep in our lives. Sometimes we can miss it in ways where the cost is more than we ever, ever, ever could have imagined. What's happening here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 is that Paul is writing a letter to the church in Corinth. 
Now, if you've been here for the past couple of weeks, what you've learned is, is that this was a church that Paul planted back in Acts chapter 18. It tells us the story about it. But Paul planted this church all the way back in Acts chapter 18, and it was a church planted in a city that was absolutely godless. The city of Corinth, uh, when you look at godly, wasn't even in their vocabulary. Uh, that was not a word that they used. The, Corinth was a godless city. For example, uh, at the top of the hill, it was about an 1,800-foot hill, there was a, place, a temple of Aphrodite up there. This was a false religion, false worship. A part of their false religion was that they had a 1,000 temple prostitutes that would come down at night into the city, and they would work their trade, and they'd go back up to the top of the hill again, all under the guise of religion. That was the city that we're dealing with in the city of Corinth. Not a godly place. And so Paul shows up. He brings the message of the gospel. We'll talk about that in just a second. And he brings the message of the gospel. And the people in Corinth, they heard this amazing message of grace. They heard this amazing message of how they're, they're, they could be forgiven of all of their sins. And their sins could be completely removed. And it was available for anybody. Didn't matter where you lived. You didn't even have to be Jewish in heritage. You didn't have to live even in the land of Israel. This was a message for anybody. And the people in Corinth, they heard this message. And many of them made the decision to make a break from their old life and to ultimately begin to follow Jesus Christ. Now, here's what happens. Within the three, four, maybe five years between that moment and when Paul wrote the letter to the, to the Corinthians called 1 Corinthians, they had really begun to miss it. And they had serious issues in their church. And as we go through this series in the, in the book of 1 Corinthians, you're going to see, man, they, they had issues. They did not do church really well. They did not do the Christian life very well. When it came to the essence of the Christian life, they completely missed the whole thing as to what the Christian life was all about. For example, we saw last week, chapter 1, they had all kinds of divisions and factions and cliques, and some were saying, I'm following this guy, and others were saying, I'm following that guy, and others were saying, I'm following that guy. And there were divisions and fights going on. Chapter 6, what you'll see is that they are suing each other and dragging each other into court. There's no love being shown one to another. Chapter 4 and 5, there's all kind of immorality going on in the church. Uh, they're arrogant. The church isn't dealing with it. The church is saying, oh, people can live however they want as long as they, long as they confess to know Jesus. There are just really no boundaries at all. In fact, it got so bad. <laughs> this is just astounding to even think about. When they would celebrate the Lord's Supper, all right, some of you may be visiting today and you, you were raised maybe in a Methodist background or a Presbyterian background or Baptist or some other denomination, but you may have an idea of what the Lord's Supper is, okay? Whenever they celebrated the Lord's Supper, people were actually even getting drunk there. <laughs> That's like, yikes, what in the world? And thankfully, we haven't had that issue here when we celebrated the Lord's Supper. That, that's a good thing. That's a positive. But it, it was that bad, right? Things were not good. I mean, the wheels were coming off of this whole thing, and it was because they had missed the whole essence of the Christian life. They did not have an idea of what the Christian life even meant. They did not even have an idea. It wasn't even on their, on their radar as to what it meant truly to be a follower of Christ. And, and let me just say this. It's not unlike a lot of people today. Because I know in a room this size, you may have been in church your whole life, but there are people still here today. And you still don't have an idea of what the Christian life is all about. For some of you, it's exactly like what Eric said. I thought it was uncanny when he went into his testimony. I even told Susie in the first service, I like showed her my notes and said, look at this, this is exactly what, he's like doing the message. We could get out five minutes early. He's like covering all this. But for a lot of you, the, the essence of the Christian life is just a bunch of rules. I mean, it really is. That, that's your idea. When you think Christian life, and when people ask you, are you a Christian, you're almost ashamed even to go there because for you, it's all about rules. And you know in the back of your mind that there are some of those rules that you didn't keep. 
some of those rules that maybe you didn't even keep today. And when you look at the essence of the Christian life, you summarize it by sort of the Ten Commandments, right? It's just a bunch of do's and do nots and thou shalt and thou shalt not. Now, those are there for a reason. They're extremely important because God has standards for us. God has guidelines. And when we step outside the boundaries that God paints for us, we, we suffer consequences. It's the way life operates. It's not because God zaps us. It's because life is designed to live according to truth. And God's, God's parameters are, are examples of his truth. But for some of you, the whole Christian life is just about rules. And when you're keeping the rules, you feel really, really good about your Christian life. You feel really good about your relationship with God, don't you? And you look back and think, hey, it's been a good week. Man, I didn't like slap anybody. I didn't get mad when somebody cut me off in traffic. I didn't steal anything from work. It's been a good week. I feel really, really close to God. Now, God, can you just please give me $10,000? Because you know, I feel really good about my Christian life, and now maybe he's going to give me something. That's not the way it works. We don't gauge the essence of our Christian life according to rules. For some of you, the essence of the Christian life is about family position. What do I mean by that? Well, my, my, my granddaddy was a Christian. My mom and dad are Christians. And if I were to ask you, are you a Christian? Your answer would be, well, I, you know, I've always been a Christian. I mean, come on, I was raised in a Christian family. That's great and that's good and, and I, I applaud that, I commend that. But that's not what the essence of the Christian life is. In fact, the, Christian, the, the scriptures never say anything about the essence of our relationship with God being tied into our family. You see some of that in the Old Testament to some small degree with the people of Israel. But God doesn't have grandkids, <laughs> right? I, there's no mention in scripture where it says, uh, you know, thou art the grandkids of God. No, it doesn't say that. You're either a child of God or you're not. And there is a very specific way that we become a child of God. And we can't ride into the Christian life on the coattails of our mom or a dad or a grandma or a granddad or some great-grandfather who was in ministry somewhere and expect that makes us right with God. That is not the essence of the Christian life. For some of you, maybe the definition of a Christian life is more cultural. It's kind of like a political thing. You know, the last couple of elections, it's become very very political to where you know you've got the religious right and some of you are are, that's what kind of what you stake your claim on as a christian well yeah i'm a christian i'm a republican or yeah i'm a christian i'm a part of that group and that's doesn't have anything to do with what the bible describes as a person who is a christian the bible doesn't even go there and then there are others for you the essence of the christian life it's it's kind of your golden ticket (laughs) it's your golden ticket In other words, my Christian life is summarized by God's obligation to give me wealth. God's obligation to give me good health. And if I ask you what's the essence of your Christian life, you'd basically go to your health and your wealth. Now those things come from God, but that's not the essence of the Christian life. You see, we have a real tendency, don't we, to miss what the Christian life is all about, just like the people did in Corinth 2,000 years ago. Here's what Paul does in this letter. Here's what God does through this letter still up until today. He addresses those of us who sometimes miss it. And what Paul does early in this letter to the Corinthian church, a, a church that was in deep trouble, they had missed the essence of what it meant to walk with God. Early on, what we have is the very first chapter. Paul is setting them straight. And he's going back to the cross. And so I want to look at a message this morning entitled, Traitors. 
And I want us to look at what Paul writes here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to begin in just a moment in verse 18. Let me just say this. This is, this is a difficult passage of Scripture to follow. If we had time, we should probably read it about eight or ten times, to be honest. It is a little difficult to follow. The good thing is the Holy Spirit is very good at helping us to understand what we need to understand. And that's my hope and desire today. Let me give you a principle real quickly. I hope you'll jot this down, and we're going to build everything around it as we walk through this passage. And the principle is this, that your view of the Christian life is shaped by your view of the cross. The way you look at your Christian life, not somebody else's Christian life, the way you look at your Christian life is directly shaped by the way you look at the cross. So let's see how Paul addresses that here. Let's look in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 is where we're going to start. I hope you brought your Bible. If you did, I hope you'll read along with me. If not, we've got it on the overhead, and you can read it there. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 is where we're going to start. Look at what it says. Paul writes, and he says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. So in that first verse, what Paul is doing is he's setting up two camps of thought, so to speak. He's saying there are those who look at the message of the cross. Now, when when we talk about the word of the cross, what are we referring to? We're referring to that moment in history 2,000 years ago. And Scripture paints a beautiful picture of it. When Jesus Christ, God the Son, ultimately was arrested falsely by the Roman authorities. He was accused falsely by the Jewish religious leaders of his day. And as a result of those false accusations, illegal trials, he was ultimately crucified for crimes that he never committed. Jesus, the Son of God, never committed one sin, and yet he was crucified by the Romans as a result of the accusations of the Jews, but for a bigger reason, ultimately, as our sacrifice for our sins. Jesus, fully God, Jesus, fully man, dying on the cross to pay the penalty of your sins and my sins and everyone else's sins that have ever lived. It's that message of the gospel, that message of the cross that Paul references here. And he says, there's one camp that looks at that message and they hear the details I've just described and they say, that is all foolishness. The Greek word there can be translated absurdity. And they look at that message and they think, okay, here's a man, Jesus, he died on the cross, I've heard the story, paying for my sins... It's just absurd. I don't get it. Some of you may even be here today, and I don't take that for granted, and we're glad you're here, and I hope you'll be back again next week, and the wheels will really begin to turn, and you'll consider so much of this because it is God's message to you. But for some of you, where you are right now, you're thinking, this is just absurd. I mean, the, what, what's all the singing and the talking about all the stories and the cross and Jesus, and I, I, you know, I wasn't raised in church. I don't really get it. It still seems to be somewhat foolish and absurd to me. Some of you, maybe you're here because somebody struck a deal, and they said, hey, if you come to church with me, I'll take you to lunch, and right now you're still thinking, okay, where are we going to lunch, and are you really going to pay for my lunch? It, you're just not there yet. It's just kind of a foolish message to you. Paul said, those people exist. There are those who see the message of the gospel as foolish, as nothing but absurd. But he says, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. See, there's another camp. There are those who have tasted, so to speak, those that have experienced what Scripture says about a relationship with God. And those who get it, those who have not missed it, understand that this is a a message that changes everything for me. This is not just just stories that are made up. No, this message of the cross, it happened 2,000 years ago, but it's still changing my life today. Paul says there's two camps. There's those that say, this is foolish. Those that say, no, 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 no. This is a display of the very power of God. Those are the two different views of the cross. 
Let's just skip ahead a little bit. Let's move on to verse 22. Paul says, For indeed, Jews ask for signs, and Greeks search for wisdom. It's interesting he says this. The Jews, they wanted a special sign, like the handwriting in the sky. When Jesus walked this earth, they didn't believe he was the Messiah. They wanted a sign to prove it. The Greeks, you remember this, right, from high school, college, yeah, you studied all of them, the philosophical minds, they were the thinkers, they were the debaters of that, of, of that period in time. They, they were searching for deeper truth. And as a result of that, they began to miss it. Now let's jump back to verse 19. Paul says, For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where's the wise man? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Paul is being a little bit sarcastic here to some degree. He, he is owning up to the fact that, you know, some of you, you don't agree with any of this and you don't accept this for what it is. But you've, you've got to understand, and this is what Paul is saying to this early church in the city of Corinth. He, he says, you've got to understand that the way you live your Christian life is directly related to how you view the cross. And you may think it's a foolish message, but it is a message, Paul says, that changed my life. It is a message that you know has changed lives of people around you. And if you're going to fix this mess that you are in, in the way you're living out your life, you've got to go right back to the cross, and that's what he's doing. Because the way we view our Christian life is directly tied to the way we view the cross. Now, now, Paul begins to become a little more specific here. In fact, look, look, at verse, look at the next verse, verse 23 and verse 24. He says, we preach Christ crucified. This is arguably the one man in history who has done more to shape culture. I mean, Paul got the message of the gospel to countries, nations, peoples that had never heard. He says, I have one message. I preach Christ crucified. There you go. Real easy. Short resume. Simple focus, I preach Christ crucified. Paul says, that's my message. To Jews, that message is a stumbling block. See, Jews, when they, when they would hear the message, and it's still the same today, they hear the message of the Messiah, and their thought is, you mean to tell me that the Messiah, who's supposed to be victorious, who's supposed to be God, ends up on a cross? Is that what you're telling me? That was the perspective of the Jews. And they would say, we can't go there. That's not the Messiah that we expect and the message of the gospel to them, Jesus dying, rising, that was a stumbling block to them. To Gentiles, to the Greeks, to, to those who are not of Jewish heritage, he says it's just foolishness. But to those who are the called, he says the same thing again. Whether Jew or Greek, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Now let me just say this. Let me, let me drag this passage out of 2,000 years ago and drop it down to where we are today. Because you read these words on a page, and I read these words on a page, and we think, as we shake our heads, boy, that church in Corinth, boy, they had their issues, didn't they? Stumbling blocks, and they couldn't accept the message of the gospel. We do the exact same thing. And let me tell you how. For some of you, you know your past. I know my past. We all have our past, and we all have our spots that we hope nobody else hears about. And you look back at your past, and you, you think about what life was like. And maybe for some of you, that past is very recent. Maybe for some, even right now. And you look back, and you see all the stuff, and you've got your list of stuff that you've done. And you think in your mind, is it as simple? You mean to tell me, Brooks, that I can have complete, total forgiveness. God will wipe the slate clean. He'll forgive me of all my sin. I'll get a fresh new start. I get a brand new heart. My whole life has changed. My whole life is different. And I got a spot in heaven waiting for me, and I don't have to do anything for it. Is that what you're 
you're telling me, and you're stumbling all over that simple truth, and that's exactly what I'm telling you. That's the message of the gospel. And yet, it is a stumbling block. You cannot forgive yourself. For some of you, you're dragging stuff around like a ball and chain that Jesus died already to forgive. And you've already given your life to Christ, but you cannot forgive yourself. And you're stumbling all over the simple message of the gospel, and you're dragging around guilt, and you're dragging around all kinds of junk, not because you don't love God, but because you do love Him. And you can't accept the simple fact that forgiveness is forgiveness, and it was secured on a cross, not by your good deeds. And the, it's still a stumbling block 2,000 years ago and still, still today. And then there are some still here today and you just say, I can't connect the dots. It's just foolish. It's, it's absurd to me. I cannot understand it. Let me, let me say this. <laughs> you will never understand it. Grace does not make sense. Let me, this, this may be shocking. I don't think I've ever said this until the first service, and they didn't run me out, so I hope you don't either. You know, in my mind, I've studied theology for quite a while. I know a little bit of how religious stuff operates outside of, you know, just different religion. You know, the Catholic belief in purgatory, that is a perfect reflection of the way the world looks at life. I don't agree with the doctrine of it, and I completely dismiss the fact that it is anything biblical. It is not, but it makes perfect sense. Why? Because to man's wisdom, me failing, falling short, sinning, filling up a whole bucket worth of sin throughout the course of my life, it makes sense from my perspective to say, i got to work this off and pay for it, doesn't it? That's just the way we work. And it may take 10 years, 100 years, 1,000 years. I don't know how all that works because I've never been Catholic. But yeah, that makes perfect sense, doesn't it? I gotta, I've sinned, I've fallen short, now I've got to pay for it. I've got to work it off so that I can get on to heaven eventually whenever my time comes. That is not grace. It is just not grace. And for some of you, you look at the message of the gospel and you say, this is just foolish. This is absurd. I can't see how the dots connect. It just doesn't make sense to me. You will never understand it. God uh, providing for us a sacrifice and a substitute named Jesus, fully God, fully man, dying in our place to take my place willingly by his love, by his grace, by his mercy. When I brought nothing to the table, that makes no sense to me. But man, I'll tell you this, I'm really glad for it because it's changed everything everything about me and so paul says there are those look at the gospel it's just foolish there are those that stumble all over it verse 25 he says because the foolishness of god is wiser than men he's being a little sarcastic again god's not foolish and god's not weak but he says the weakness of god is stronger than men for consider your calling brethren that there were not many wise according to the flesh. Now realize he's writing this as a letter to the church in Corinth. <laughs> I think it's kind of funny. He's basically telling them, hey, listen, you didn't bring a whole lot to the table. <laughs> he says, consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh. I'm thinking they're probably thinking, who you saying is not wise? He says, not many wise, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong. He's chosen the base things of the world and the despised God's chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. It is not what we do. It is how we respond to what he has already done. Verse 30, verse 31. He says, by his doing, you're in Christ Jesus who became to us, look at what God gives us through relationship with Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, 
righteousness, sanctification, redemption. So that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Your view of the Christian life is completely shaped by your view of the cross. And if the cross to you is just a fashion statement, if it's something you wear because it goes good with an outfit, if the cross to you is a political statement, if the cross to you is just a family heritage statement, if the cross to you just simply reflects the fact that you've always been in church, if that's all the cross is to you, then I'd be willing to say, based on history, that your Christian life is probably going to reflect that view. But listen, if the cross to you was when you bankrupt were made rich spiritually, and if the cross to you when you broken spiritually were made whole and healed, if the cross to you was where you death found life, if the cross to you sinful found forgiveness, if the cross to you defines who you are, and if the cross to you ultimately reflects a great transaction where you came to the table with nothing to give, and yet you found out, hey, you don't need to bring anything to the table but your faith and your trust and your, your repentance And what you found there was the transaction that took place was Jesus dying in your place to give himself on your behalf. If that's what the cross is to you, hey, listen, Christian life looks a whole lot different. Because my obedience there then doesn't become, oh, i got to keep this rule again. I'm so sick and tired of keeping all these rules. That's not the way you look at it. You look back at the cross and you remember, great transaction. Sin, exchange for forgiveness. Death, exchange for life. And when that's the cross to you, those acts of good and those steps of obedience become acts of worship to a God who did something you could never, ever have done on yourself, on your own. And it's a whole different mindset. And so Paul looks at this church, a church with a lot of issues, and he says to them, you're going to be healed when you remember who Christ made you. We looked at that a couple of weeks ago, last Sunday actually. And you're going to be healed when you go back to the cross. Because the events of the cross, when we understand them, is ultimately what shapes our view of the Christian life. You know, Paul would look at himself, and he would use himself as an example. Let's look at the first five verses of chapter 2, and we're done. He would use himself as an example. He says, when I came to you, he says to the Corinthians, when I came to you, brethren, I didn't come with superiority of speech or of wisdom. He says, I wasn't some great speaker that came and took a microphone this day. No, he says, that wasn't me proclaiming to you the testimony of God. Now, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. My message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that you wouldn't trust in me, some great speaker. You wouldn't trust in me, some amazing missionary. You wouldn't trust in me, the one who planted this church. No, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. I want to ask you to do something this morning as we close. And it's not going to be a, a physical step you're going to get up and take. It's going to be a decision that you make in your mind and in your heart. I'm going to ask you to become a traitor this morning. I'm going to ask you to become a traitor, T-R-A-D. ER. And I'm going to ask you to trade in the quietness of your own heart your idea to now of what the Christian life has been about. 
whether it's been about rules, whether it's been about keeping the family heritage, whether it's been about throwing the name of Jesus out there because you're talking to a customer who happens to be a churchgoer and you think it might get you a sale. I'm going to ask you to take that whole concept of the Christian life, pack it up, kick it to the curb, and to trade it in for a view of the Christian life that reflects that transaction that took place on the cross. A transaction that happened 2,000 years ago. The implications are as far-reaching as this moment to right where you sit. A transaction that this world still talks about. And to some, the message is so inflammatory, they will not even allow it within its borders. I'm going to ask you to trade in your old view of the Christian life for a view that reflects the cross. And out of that view, to begin living a life, not to keep a rule, not to jump through a hoop, not to hope that God sees the good deed and blesses you a little bit extra, but that you'll begin to live a life fueled by the amazement of having never gotten over the simple fact that God even forgave me. Some of you have never responded to that message. Some of you have, but you've missed it. And today's the time to come back to the heart, the cross. For others, you've heard the message, but you've never responded. You've missed it. And today's the day, right where you sit, if you're ready, to say, Lord Jesus, would you even forgive me? Take over my life and do with me what no one else could do. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this church. God, I thank you for these friends, my pe- these people, my friends, part of my family as a, as, a, as a Christian. I thank you for your great love for us, God. I thank you that we're able to proclaim a message like this in complete freedom. Lord, you have blessed us. And Lord, many of the things I've talked about are good. It's great to have Christian heritage and families. And, and there is a place where steps of obedience, obviously, are so important. But Father, the essence of the Christian life goes all the way back to the cross. And Lord, I know that in this day and age in which we live, it's easy to miss the heart of what makes us who we are. Lord, I pray that if our view of the Christian life has been just about jumping through hoops to keep you happy or keeping a list of rules, Lord, we know how how that shackles us and it steals joy. If our view of the Christian life has been, well, I've always been one of those because I was raised that way or I've been baptized or I've been a part of a church forever. Lord, those things are good, but they don't, they don't define the Christian life. Lord, the way Paul summarizes it is that it goes back to the gospel. And some count that foolish, but we can't change the message. Some count it as absurd. Some say it's just a stumbling block. I can't get past it. Well, Lord, to those who are willing to take that step and to turn from sin and to respond in faith to Jesus Christ, Lord, we begin to see pretty quickly. Lord, this is the greatest message we've ever heard. <laughs> Lord, it changes the way we raise our kids. It changes the way we act in our marriages. It changes the way we spend our money. It changes what we do on weekends. Lord, it defines our very lives. And Lord, I thank you for this message and that you got it to me early. And I thank you that regardless of where we've been or what we've done, Lord, that message still carries all the power that you desire to change lives that are willing to respond. For those that don't know you today, Lord, may they be quick right where they sit to believe that Jesus died and rose again, that he's God, that he stands ready to forgive them and to take over if they'll only invite him to do that. 
And for those that have done it, Lord, I pray that you'd redefine maybe what their view of the Christian life has been. Take them back to the cross. Amaze us, Lord, all over again with what took place there. And may we live our life to give you honor, gladly taking second place so that you can be seen first through us. Bless the decisions we need to make to help us to do this. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.